Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 21 this morning. And as we remember in the book of Galatians, Paul has been defending the gospel. He's been defending the idea that we are saved by grace through faith and nothing else needs to be added to that pure gospel message. And as we remember last week, Peter had made a stumble. He had fallen as the Judaizers had come in from Jerusalem, convincing people they needed to earn their way into God's grace. And in fact, Peter had fallen in line with these men, separating himself from the other Gentile believers in Galatia, or in Antioch. And as he sat there and separated himself from them, he led others astray, and he hurt the witness of the gospel. And so Paul had called him out. Paul had said, Peter, you can't live like that. If you, even though being a Jew, live like Gentile, how do you expect the Gentiles to live to the standards of the Jews that you yourself don't even keep in your daily life? And so what's wrong with you? What are you doing? And as he calls him out, we see today that he continues his argument defending salvation by grace through faith. In fact, he begins his argument by talking about that we are justified not by works of the law, but that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is an important verse in Scripture. In fact, this is the first time in the letter that Paul has brought up the word justified. In fact, this is probably the first time Paul has ever written the word justified in one of his letters, because Galatians is probably the first letter that he wrote to one of the churches he established. So this concept of justification is so important to Christian thought. It's so important that as the Reformers read these passages of Scripture, along with other passages in the book of Romans, they realized that justification was not through the works laid out by Rome. But instead, justification was by faith alone. This passage of Scripture is huge. This passage of Scripture, to understand it, is to understand the gospel. To understand these verses is to understand the entirety of the book of Galatians. To understand these verses will change the way you see God and change the way you live each and every day for Him. So let's look and starting in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 2. We see here the text says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We see here again that 
Paul begins this discussion of our salvation by entering into the discussion the idea of justification. And justification is one of those words that we throw around in church a lot. And we think it's synonymous with a lot of other words that we throw around in church, like being pardoned or being forgiven. But it's just not the case. See, to be justified is not to be pardoned. To be pardoned means that you're still guilty. When someone's pardoned from a crime, they've been found guilty of that crime. And then either a judge or sometimes the president of the United States decides to pardon them. And what does he do when he pardons them? He's not declaring them to be innocent. They're still guilty. They've been found guilty according to the law. But in pardoning them, their sentence or their punishment is removed. That's not what justification is. Justification is so much more. Justification also isn't forgiveness. Forgiveness simply means that, you know, you recognize that someone is wrong. You recognize that someone has done something you don't agree with. And when you say, I forgive you, what you mean by that is, I'm not going to be mad at you anymore. I'm no longer going to hold it over your head. I'm no longer going to be upset or angered by that thing that you did anymore. But you notice that when you forgive somebody, you don't claim that what they did was okay. And you don't claim that they were right in doing it. They're still guilty. They're still wrong. You're just not mad at them anymore. Justification is not forgiveness. It's something so much more. To be justified is to be declared innocent. To be justified means that God looks at us and says, as I look at your life, as I look at your deeds, as I look at your actions, as I look at the, the evidence that is before me, I see no sin. Justification means that God looks at the evidence in your life and says, I declare you to be innocent. Now we sit back and we think to ourselves, how is that possible? Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know the deeds of my life. I know the things that I have done. I know the things that I have spoken in moments of anger. I know actions that I have performed in the privacy of my own home that no one sees or knows. I know the attitudes of my heart and the thoughts that pass through my mind. And when I even think of the things that I'm aware of and I lay them down as evidence before the Lord, I don't see how he can declare me innocent. I don't see how he can declare me to be good or righteous or holy or pure because the evidence of my life condemns me. That's why the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. And as I live in sin and I work in sin, the wage I earn is death in return. And yet somehow God says I have been justified. How can such a thing be possible? Well, it's because, as the scripture says, Paul opens up his letter saying, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, we're Jews. And again, he's talking to Peter. So he's like, Peter, you and I are both Jews. We've got the Old Testament law. We've got the oracles. We've got the prophecies. We've got the Old Testament. We've got Psalms and Proverbs. We, got, we have all of this revelation from God given to us, and we seek 
to follow it. And we seek to live up to God's standard. And we try the very best we can. And yet, what do we know, Peter? He says, even though we're Jews who try to follow the law, we're, we're not Gentiles who have no knowledge of God's law. We're not Gentiles who have no knowledge of God's expectation, who aren't even trying to follow him. No, we're Jews. And yet, what do we know? We know that no one is justified by works of the law. But instead, how are we justified? How are we declared to be innocent before God? The scripture says that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, this is what happens with justification. Jesus came to this place to redeem his church. And as Jesus stepped into the world, he lived a perfect life. And understand what that means. Because a lot of times we sit there and we think to ourselves, oh, when we say Jesus lived a perfect life, you know, he followed all of the 600 or so laws that were in the Old Testament that the Jews had to follow at that time. But we have to understand that the chief law and the chief rule given to the Jews is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19 even tells them that you're to love your neighbor as yourself and treat your neighbor as yourself. These are the things that Jesus had told them. You love God with everything you've got, and you love your neighbor the way you'd love yourself. And on those two laws, the rest of the prophets hang. Meaning if you keep those two laws perfectly, <clears throat> the rest of the Old Testament's not a problem. But imagine what that takes. It means every thought, every intention, every motivation must be pure and free of any kind of selfishness, free of any kind of malice, free of any kind of compulsion. And Jesus lived every moment of every day of his life that way. I, I can hardly make it a morning without having some kind of sinful motivation or attitude. I, I don't know necessarily the last time I sinned. I probably couldn't pinpoint it. But my guess is it's sometime within the last hour. Like, we're just full of it. And yet Christ lived a perfect life. And so when Christ went to the cross, he wasn't dying because of any sin he committed. He wasn't facing the wrath of God because of any mistake he made or any shortcoming he made. But no, what the Bible says to us is that our sin was taken away from us. And it was placed onto Jesus as he died on the cross. And then, in a miracle performed by God, the righteous life of Jesus is credited to our account. And just as we were dead in our sin in Adam, so now we are alive in our faith in Jesus Christ. So when God looks at our account, guess what? Your sin's not there anymore if you are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't just mean that God looked at your sin and said, you know what, you've messed up a lot, but I forgive you, but you're still guilty. That's not what he did. It's not just that God said, you know what, I declare you guilty, but I'm just going to get rid of the punishment and get rid of your death sentence, and so you can come live with me. That's not what he did. He took our sin away. And our sin was nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. 
and the perfect life and righteousness of Jesus was given to us so that when God looks at us, he says nothing but the works of his son, which are perfect, holy, and pure. That's why our faith in Christ justifies us before God, because our faith in Christ literally takes our sin away and gives us life everlasting. And that's what Paul preached. That's what Paul pushed. Paul said, listen, we aren't justified by works of the law. We are justified by faith. And this caused a problem for the Jews. The Jews of Paul's day looked at that argument and they said, Paul, we got a problem. Because Paul, listen, if you're telling me that you don't have to perform any work, that you don't have to live under the law, that there's nothing else that you have to do, well, then doesn't that just mean that as you come to Christ and you unload all of your sin on him, doesn't that mean that Jesus just promotes sin? And in fact, that's the argument that Paul deals with in the next part of the scripture. He says in verse 17, But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. See, the argument was this. Paul, if Jesus just takes their sin away, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, no matter how much, how much sin they've piled up on themselves, doesn't that just make Jesus a servant of sin? And this word servant here is very specific. Think of what a servant does. They serve their master. They promote the will of their master. Imagine like a CEO who has an assistant. A big-time CEO that's got lots of things to do and lots of meetings and lots of places they have to be. What's their assistant do? Their assistant might keep a calendar for them. Their assistant might schedule appointments for them. Their assistant might pull files and make copies and do any number of things, all for the purpose of what? Promoting their success. So the argument here that people are making against Paul is that if Jesus just takes their sin away, isn't he promoting sin? Isn't he promoting us to go out and sin as much as we want and do anything that we care to do? Because, man, Jesus is just going to take it away, right? Isn't that how we're going to live? And that's the concern they have, that Paul, if you take away the law, we're going to have real problems. Because the Jews who had the law knew how much they sinned. And that was under the confines of the law. That was under the confines of a standard. That was under the confines of an expectation that God had. You just pull that away and take it off of people's backs, they're going to sin like crazy. Sin will abound, and this whole thing's just going to fall apart. You can't tell people just to believe in Jesus, Paul. And the Jews have a point here of real concern because we know that we're sinful creatures, right? You know, I remember one time I was in high school, and um, one of the things that a lot of my friends were jealous about as I went through my high school career is that I didn't have a curfew. I didn't have any set time that I had to be home. And normally that wasn't a big deal. You know, we weren't doing anything crazy and weren't really doing much around town or anything. But there was one night I was hanging out at my friend's house and we were doing whatever we were doing. And all of a sudden I looked down and, oh, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And so I don't think anything of it. It's not a big deal. I just go home because I don't have any rule over me. And... 17-year-old Chuck Carter gets to do whatever 17-year-old Chuck Carter wants to do. It's a pretty sweet life. So I go back to my house, and I walk in the door. I'm not trying to be quiet. I'm not trying to sneak around because I'm not in trouble. But I walk in the door, and I shut the door behind me, and I'm off to go to my room, and I hear from my mother's bedroom, Chuck? 
what time is it? And so I look at my watch. Well, it's 325. And I'll never forget the conversation we had because it's probably the oddest conversation between a parent and a child that I would ever think you'd have. And she sits there and she says, it's really late. And I said, I'm sorry, what time do you want me to be home at night? And her response was, I, I don't know, but this is really late. And we just kind of stood there for a minute and I went, well, what do you want me to do? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to go to bed. And so I did. I never had a curfew, and, but I kind of had in the back of my head, hey, guess what? 3.25 in the morning, might be pushing it. <laughs> but here's the point. I didn't have a rule over me. I didn't have a standard over my life. I didn't have anyone telling me, Chuck Carter, you need to be home by 10.30 p.m. or there's going to be consequences. No one said that to me. And so what did I do? Whatever I wanted. And until someone told me otherwise, I was going to keep doing whatever I wanted. And that's the fear that the Jews have as they come before Paul in this passage. Paul, if you get rid of the law, people will do whatever they want. And that's a problem because, again, we are sinful people. And in that argument and in that concern and in that misunderstanding, you see so clearly that the Judaizers who are standing up against Paul do not understand the gospel. They don't understand what it's all about. Because the truth is, yeah, without the law, we will go and do whatever we want. But by the grace of God, for those of us born again in Christ Jesus, for those of us who have been raised to walk in the newness of life, for those of us who have been born again of the Spirit, saved, regenerated, and sent to stand up before God and live holy lives before Him, by His grace and His grace alone, our wants begin to change. Because look what Paul says as he continues. He says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul's answer to their concern? What's Paul's answer to the concern of if you remove the law, Paul, people are going to do whatever they want to do? He says, you completely miss it because you've got to understand that I've died to the law. I've been crucified with Jesus. What does he mean when he says that? He means the old Paul who used to be here. The Paul who wanted to destroy the church. The Paul who persecuted the church. The Paul who held coats while they stoned Stephen. The Paul who was going to Damascus to arrest Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. That Paul doesn't live here anymore. That Paul's gone. That Paul is dead. That Paul has been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. See, when we come to salvation, it is 
transformative. It is life changing. You cannot have an experience or an encounter with holy almighty God and not be changed and transformed. Now, the degree of that change and the degree of that transformation is different for different people at different times. Some people, as they come to Christ, I've heard amazing stories about how their entire life is turned around seemingly overnight. There's one gentleman that I talked to. At the time, he was in his 90s, and he was talking about how way, way back, years and years and years ago, when he got saved, that he was attending a, a national gathering of men in Washington, D.C., and he was sitting there, and he wasn't saved at the time. He didn't know the gospel. Some friends of his were going to this big prayer meeting in Washington, D.C. And as he went there, and he heard the gospel. Now, you have to understand that this man, part of his testimony, he said, I was absolutely 100% racist from the moment I could remember being a little kid all the way up into the point when I went to this conference in Washington, D.C., he said, and I don't mean just like, oh, we had our differences. I hated them. And then I stood there and I heard the gospel. I heard how my sin was going to condemn me forever. I heard how I had offended a holy God with my life and my rebellion. And I heard that the only way to set myself right was to place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his complete work on the cross. And when I gave my life to that, something changed. And later that day, after receiving the rebirth of Jesus, he saw another African-American gentleman who was at the conference. And he said, I walked up to that man and I said, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. And I told him, well, then you are my brother in Christ. And I wrapped my arms around him and the both of us sat there and wept together. That kind of transformation happens in people's lives when they come to Jesus. For other people, it's a lot slower. I had another conversation with someone who had given their life to Christ. They've been a Christian for many years. And they said, you know what? When I came to Christ, I was still in the throes of addiction. And I was in the throes uh, of alcoholism. And my life was an absolute mess. And I cleaned myself up a lot. But you know what? I still smoked pot and did drugs for several years into my Christian walk. And it took time for the Holy Spirit to work on me and change me and transform me. But you know what? As I stand here now, I'm not the same person I was when I came to Jesus. For some people, it's like a flash in a pan. For other people, it's a long, slow process of transformation. But here's the point. The gospel changes people. Because the scripture tells us that Christ has ransomed us away from our futile ways of living. And Jesus gets what he pays for. When Jesus' blood was shed on the cross for us, for our sin, to purchase us and make us a part of his family, he doesn't expect us to stay in enemy territory. But no, Jesus' perf perfection and Jesus' purchase of our lives is effective. He gets what he paid for. And so we see the gospel is transformative. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, listen, my life is different. My life is new. My life has been changed. It's no longer I who live, me in my sin, me in my shortcomings, me in my bigotry, me in my closed-mindedness, me in my hatred of the church, me in my rebellion of God. That doesn't live here anymore, but now it is Jesus who controls this life.
And how does he live now that he has this newness of Christ? How does he live in this new way? He says in the scripture, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. And the life I now live in the flesh, this life that I now live in this body and in this world with all of its limitations, with all of its, its temptations, with all of its shortcomings, this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Moment by moment, Paul depends on Jesus to continue to live the Christian life. See, we have this mindset and this idea sometimes in our Christian walk that it's just all about the behavior that we have. It's all about doing the right thing despite what we feel on the inside. That like, yeah, I may still have these desires and I may still have these issues and I may still have things, but if I just do the right thing, I'm going to be okay. That's legalism and it's perfectionism and it's behaviorism and that's not what the gospel's about. See, it's not enough for us to still love the things of the world, but just abstain from partaking. But as the gospel infects our lives, our affections change. Our hearts change. And the things that we once loved, we now abhor. And the things that were of no interest to us suddenly become the very foundation of our lives. That's why David wrote, I delight in the law. Of the Lord. Notice that David didn't say, I begrudgingly read the Word of God every day. I do my duty and have my quiet time because it's what I'm supposed to do. That's not what David's words are. I delight in the law of the Lord. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezra, they opened the books of the law and they read it to the people who were standing there gathered around, and they did it all day. They read from God's word in Leviticus and Numbers. Have you ever delighted in the book of Leviticus? I don't think so. These people did. They sat and they listened to God's holy word and they said, we want more and we'll sit here all day. And they read the entirety of it from beginning to end. Why? Because it's the word of God and they loved it. And as we approach the Bible, that's the change that should take place in our life. Our life is not one of begrudging duty. Our life is not one of us constantly abstaining from the things that we love and forcing ourselves to do the things that we really don't have any interest in. The true born-again Christian life is one that is so changed and so transformed that our greatest satisfaction is in Christ and Christ alone. Our true transformation takes place when we see that we would rather sit around and talk with our family and talk with our friends about the things of God, setting our minds on things of above, than we would want to spend time spending anything that has to do with this world. See, that's the goal of the gospel in our salvation, not just to save us and, oh, now we can't do the fun things we used to like to do, but to transform us in such a way where we, with Paul, say, the old man's not here anymore. It is Christ who rules this house. It is Christ who rules this life. I delight in his law. I delight in his service. And I will live every moment of every day reliant on him to keep me and hold me grounded fast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this life, I live in the flesh. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. Paul concludes this portion of the scripture by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's important that we understand here that that word nullify carries the idea with it that says that I set it aside. That that I take this thing that has been done and I move it out of the way so that I can move on to something else. So literally what Paul is saying here is I do not set aside the grace of God. Because grace is all I've got. Grace is the only thing that can make me right with God. I don't set aside the grace of God because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, I understand this. When we talk about grace, we don't mean that God opened a door that allows you to be saved. That's not what grace is. Because if you have to add something of your own to grace, if you've got to add your own conviction, or you've got to add your own decision, or you've got to add your own ability, or your own performance, or your own merit, or your own anything, if you've got to add it to grace, well then guess what? Grace is no longer grace, and Christ died for no purpose. No, when we talk about grace, we are not talking about a potentiality of your salvation. We are not saying that God opened the door that made it possible for you to be saved. When we say the grace of God, we mean he saved you. And that by his grace, he took your sinful life and he wiped your sin away and he placed you in Christ Jesus. And he said, you're mine now. You belong to me. It's done and it's finished. And that's the only reason we can stand here and say that once saved, always saved. Because it had nothing to do with me. If keeping hold of my salvation had something to do with me and my ability, I would have lost it by now. Why? Because I'm a mess. And Jesus is way better than I ever could be. One of my favorite ideas when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to this idea that we have been saved by grace, is to ask yourself the question, when God wants to save somebody, what does he do? And you can sit there and ponder it, and you can sit there and think to yourself, well, he sends a preacher, he sends the gospel, he does these different things, and he, he lays out the argument, and you can make your plan. But the answer is really simple. When God wants to save someone, he saves them. Period. Stop. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord. He is the author of our salvation, and there is no other name by which man shall be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says in this passage is, it's got nothing to do with us. Has nothing to do with any work of the law. Has nothing to do with earning any kind of merit before Jesus or or trying to earn your way into God's good graces because if that's what it is, then Jesus died for nothing. But no. See, we can throw off the shackles of the law because through the grace of God, we have been saved. We have been justified. And we have been transformed and changed into such creatures that now delight in the Lord. So when the Jews look at Paul and they say, Paul, we got a problem here. If you kick off the law, people are going to do whatever they want. His answer is, exactly. And these people whom God has saved, they delight in the works of the Lord. They delight in serving him. 
They offer themselves as living sacrifices on the altar of his grace. And they say, use me, Father, for your glory. Because the chief aim of our life is the magnification and the glorification of our God. He has taken our sin away. My sin, oh the joy of this wondrous thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have taken away our sin. We thank you that you have justified us as we place our faith and trust in Jesus. We thank you that when you saw us destitute, dead, depraved, that you didn't leave us in that condition, but you reached into the muck of our lives and you pulled us out, setting our feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, giving us faith in his name and his work on the cross and allowing us to see the truth of your gospel. You saved us. You sent your son to die for us. And our sin is no more because it has been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Thank you for this miraculous work of salvation. Thank you that we are justified by no work of the law, but only by faith in Jesus. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you all in his precious name. Amen.